and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. I'm joined, as always, by Nizar Hassan. How's it going, Nizar? Great. How are you? I'm doing good. We've got a lot to talk about this week, especially our main topic this week is Kamal Jumblat and his legacy. I'm so excited. Yeah, this is going to be a really exciting episode. You've done a whole lot of research for this, so I'm really excited to hear what you have to say (laughs) about it. But first off the news, we've got some happy news to start out with. Uh, Yay! Lebanon has water. What? Yeah, yeah, we we actually have water. Lake Karaon, Lebanon's man-made lake out in the Ba'a Valley, is at like its highest level. It overflowed this week. Nice. Which is, I mean, we've been having water problems for years. And so now this is this is just great. And so this means hopefully that's all done. That's good news number one. Good news number two, barricades are removed in Ainatine. This is really big, yeah? I mean, for, for me, this is like a transformation of my experience with the city. For the last two years, I couldn't pass in Ainatine and I had to go to Ramlet Al-Baida and take, uh, take a turn there. So this is life-changing. I love it. Yeah, these barriers that basically blocked off a major artery of the city right in front of Nabi Berri's house are gone, thanks to credit where credit's due, uh, Nabi Berri for allowing it, and uh, to Rael Hassan, uh, the interior minister, who is taking these barriers down all across the city. Yeah. Uh, On Friday, we had big news. Uh, Nasrallah spoke. He called for donations to the party uh, because the sanctions are hitting the party pretty hard. And he said, you know, we expect this to get worse. Uh, And of course, it is going to get worse. We had David Satterfield, U.S. official in town this past week, getting ready for the visit of Mike Pompeo, the U.S. Secretary of State, who is slated to be in sometime around March 22nd. So we are expecting more shoes to drop on the U.S. sanctions front. uh, and, And Nasrallah wants to be ready for that. Nasrallah also, he also vowed to continue the anti-corruption campaign that a lot of people have been talking about. This is uh, one of the huge stories in Lebanon right now, specifically tied to corruption about the spending of state finances. And we had another thing on that front this week, Alain Bethany, who is the director general of the Ministry of Finance. He had a press conference, and this this is sort of unprecedented. I don't think, I've never seen anything quite like this before, the director general of the ministry coming out and, and he defended uh, his role uh, at, at the finance ministry and, say, and said that he had actually resisted political pressure. Now, this press conference came after, if you remember, the week before, Fuad Sanyora, the former prime minister, the former finance minister, had a press conference saying, oh, I, I didn't do I didn't spend anything wrong uh, during my term as prime minister. Uh, everything is accounted for. Uh, all of this money went to the right place. Of course, speaking about the $11 billion in funds that were spent over and above the budget between 2006 and 2009. And and, and during that press conference, Senora said, oh, if people have questions about all of these receipts, they should ask the director general of the finance ministry, Alain Bifeni. So Bifeni was coming out oh. and basically pushing back against Senora. And Nasrallah also kind of targeted Senora indirectly in his speech, right? Because he said that Hezbollah is not trying to target anyone in the anti-corruption campaign, but someone felt mm, the need to be defensive about it and to just put one, just in, just one former finance minister and former prime minister. Yeah, not who, to who name could that possibly describe. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and uh, Bifani also he d- he didn't name Senora as as well, but you know he he did say some things. You know that you know he he referenced the man who tried to eliminate the role of the director general. You know, basically accusing yeah. Fuad Senora of trying to sideline him. And and by the way, these guys have a lot of history. Back last week, we we went we went through this issue, and we were talking about you know Fuad Senora's press conference dealt with 
the time that he was prime minister. Before he was prime minister, though, he was the finance minister. He was Alain Bifani's boss at the finance ministry mm. from 2000 to 2004. Before that, uh, he was the minister of state for finance in Rafiq Hariri's governments in the 90s. So Fouad Senora has a very, very long history at the finance ministry, as is Alain Bifani. He's been the director general since 2000. So th these guys go a long ways back. And the, and the accusation that he made to Senora is pretty in grave. Like he said, uh, you know, that Senora was trying to keep him away from some files that or, or something like that. So Senora was trying to hide, hide some files or uh, avoid Bifani looking into them. So that's quite an indirect corruption accusation. Yeah, precisely. So I, d I don't think that we've heard the last of this. And not only that, but the other thing that happened this week on this front, uh, the current finance minister, Ali Hassan Khalil, he said that a gigantic report, something like 500 page report, had been prepared on finances, not just 2006 to 2009, 1993 to 2017, the whole shebang. And he said that there were significant gaps in these accounts and uh, that it is now uh, sitting with the court of audit. So we're, we're going to hear more about this. Uh, in, in other big news this week, also Parliament met. They elected members of the Supreme Council, which is, is a constitutional body that is like half MPs, half judges, basically seven MPs, eight judges, and they try ministers and the prime minister and the president. But only if two thirds of parliament like agrees and, and sends the file off to them. So essentially, it, it, it's a, a totally ineffective body. Parliament also, though, did some things that maybe will have more effect. They passed treasury advances to EDL. They authorized the rollover of euro bonds, uh, which is totally necessary because we've got like $2 billion in dollar-denominated debt that is coming due between now and the end of May. But uh, that's more debt for the future. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. We're like the, the finance ministry does not have dollars just sitting around to pay off all of these debts, so they will have to issue new euro bonds get the new money in and pay off the old uh, the old investors. Great. Uh, they also allowed the one rule, which is like this special mechanism that's unconstitutional to be used through the end of May, which is basically it, it's saying in the absence of a budget, we've got this special facility that allows us to fund the government. Well, they said, yes, you can use it, but you only have until the end of May. So as of now, there is a time limit. There's a deadline. The budget has to be passed by the end of May. So it has to go through cabinet and then go through the parliament. Um, and, and they also ratified the Paris Agreement on climate change. Wow, nice. Yeah, getting with the times. Uh, w one person who is not at parliament was uh, Dima Jumeli because she is <laughs> no longer an MP. <laughs> That's mean. <laughs> oh, it's, it's true. It's true. Hey, you know, no, no nothing, nothing against her at all. Uh, but yeah, she just isn't an MP any longer. But she did officially launch her campaign this week. And we also heard that the date of the election is going to be April 14th. So look out, one more election coming along. Uh, also, Paula Yaoubian, the member of parliament for East Beirut, uh, the Armenian Orthodox seat there, she made a lot of news this week. Yeah, she's been on the news every day. She, she, she is very media savvy. She's, she's a former journalist uh, herself. She used to work at uh, Mustabal TV. And, and one of the things that happened this week is that she alleges that Nader Hariri, Saad Hariri's cousin and former chief of staff, she says that he got sacked from that chief of staff job for going behind Saad's back and doing some deals in the telecommunications sector without his knowledge, which is a big, big revelation or allegation or surprise. Of course, Hariri's office denied this immediately, 
Uh, This is interesting just because Nader Hariri, if you remember, resigned in the aftermath of the May elections in which Future lost a whole lot of seats. They went from like 33, 34 seats down to 20 seats. We saw a big reshuffle of uh, future electoral officials, but also Nader Hariri resigned like a week after the election. Yeah, and it comes in the context of uh, Paula talking about corruption, the corruption of politicians in Lebanon, because she's she was on TV a couple of times in the last two weeks, and she was asked what she thinks about the corruption of specific individuals in the Lebanese, uh, uh, the Lebanese political scenes. And one of them was Sal Hariri, and she didn't say he was corrupt. She said that people around him are kind of corrupt, but he's not. That's a very common narrative that says, you know, Sal Hariri is good, but the people around him are bastards. Right, right, which I, I think is applied not only to him, but to other Zaims in the country. But but this specific thing led led to another event happening this week, right? Yeah, something really big, in my opinion, happened, which is that the this fresh political party, Sabah, who were the supporters of uh, Polaya Obian in her uh, candidacy for the elections. Uh, they kind of disowned her and they said that she's no longer a Sabah MP. She's now an independent MP. And the reasons that they gave in their statement uh, released on Friday at a press conference, actually, they said that, uh, first of all, it was Paula's hesitation to condemn the Hariri camp in, in terms of corruption because when she was asked about, for example, uh, Fuad Sanura specifically and whether he's corrupt, she was very hesitant to say, but when she was asked about Jibran Basile, she was much. She said, "Yeah, he's corrupt, and I have files against him, stuff like that." So and and is being sued by him now because of that. But exactly, and a lot of people from the independent scene who are kind of supportive of Paula were very disappointed for the fact that she kind of put uh, uh, Senura and Hariri on the side while they are considered kind of the godfathers of the, like Hariri's family, not Saad Hariri, kind of the godfathers of the current uh, system and and the type of corruption that we have uh, in Lebanon today. So a lot of people are very angry at her. The, the party also said that Paula Obian failed to attend the executive committee meetings uh, since the election. She's only attended two out of 30 meetings. She has not been advocating Sabah's top legislative priority a piece of legislation that is really funny. It's called the, the the law to return the stolen money. And it's supposed to be enacted by parliament so that we can take back the money that the same politicians have stolen over the last 20, 30 years. And she has uh, taken her own stances away from the party. Like she, she announced on TV that in one of the interviews that she does not really abide by the party's decisions. She makes her own decisions. And this one last item that she kind of refused to declare properties and assets that she has inside and outside Lebanon, which was a condition for Sabah, for any candidate and for Kulunawatani, the coalition that was in the elections for any candidate running. So all of these reasons combined uh, were kind of the motives, uh, according to Sabah, for their uh, expulsion of uh, Yaobian. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how big of a deal this is, though, in, in, in the larger sense, just because like she was already sort of independent, you know, like we called her a Saba MP because technically she was, but like she very clearly from the time she was elected, didn't really care that much about that label. Yeah. And, 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 and this is absolutely right as well that like, yeah, she, she has taken sort of her own path in parliament. But I think this is really important because Saba is the richest political, uh, independent political group in Lebanon. They have spent millions actually of dollars in terms of communication and campaigning since before, way before the elections, since like the last two, three years, they've been spend, spending all of this money on promoting their, their vision and their platform. And they have a lot of reach, 
I'm not exposure. I'm not saying that they have a lot of influence on the ground or electoral power or anything, but they have a lot of reach. And this was a, hu- a very damaging thing to Paula's credibility within the base of kind of supporters or at least the base of followers, people who follow Sabah and their actions, etc. And I think everyone's going to lose from this. I think it was a big miscalculated step. Sabah will lose their main asset in terms of mobilization. Sabah are nothing without the celebrities. Let's be honest. I analyzed their electoral numbers. They're nothing. There is not even one seat got a big number of votes without having a celebrity uh, and, and specifically it's in Beirut with Paula Yaubian and in our area and Shouf with, with Ghada Eid. That's it, right? Sabah does not have the mobilizational capacity as a political party to uh, to rally thousands or, or tens of thousands of people and they kind of gave away their biggest asset this week and this means that they're going to pay for it in the future in my opinion. At the same time, Paula lost uh, some credibility that she kind of had a lot among a lot of people. She's very popular among a huge section of the population, in my opinion, especially people who are kind of supporters of political uh, parties. At the same time, they want to see someone doing some change in, uh, from inside the, the legislative authority. And, and also Paula lost because it highlighted something that low-key a lot of people have concerns about, which is her ties to the future movement mm. and whether she really is independent or not. Exactly. Okay, on to the topic of the week, because this this coming week, a really big thing is going to happen. It's uh, it's going to be the anniversary of the assassination of one of the biggest figures in Lebanese history. This coming Saturday on the 16th of March is what the 42nd anniversary of the assassination of Kamal Jumblat. Indeed. And we'll talk more about his assassination uh, in a bit, but... Let's basically give some background on who this person is and why he's so significant in, in Lebanon's history. So a bit of personal background. Uh, Kamal Jumblat was born in 1917 in Mukhtara and Shouf, where his big palace is uh, is based. He was born to Fuad and Nazira Jumblat, a feudal family uh, with of Kurdish origins. Uh, the name is actually Jambulad uh, originally, which means steel-bodied or steel-soul. I think that's cool. Oh, nice. And uh, this family had been ruling or contesting power in Shouf, uh, in the district of Shouf in Mount Lebanon for around three centuries. Fuad Jumblat, his father was the Qa'am Maqam of Shouf, and he was assassinated in 1921. Uh, which Qa'am Maqam was sort of like an Ottoman-era governor. Yeah, exactly. And uh, after uh, Fuad's assassination, his wife Nazira became the leader of the family and the Mukhtara Palace. Uh, she had like this remarkable experience as the only woman leader um, in Lebanon of a major political family in that era. And there's a documentary about her called The Lady of the Palace, if anyone's interested. So Nazira ruled the family, but she wanted Kamal, she was grooming Kamal to kind of be the uh, successor of his father. Uh, He went to a Christian school in Kesirwan, and then at uh, 20 he graduated and went to Paris where he studied social sciences and then law at uh, the Sorbonne. Uh, school at, in Paris but when the World War II was erupting he came back to Lebanon and he continued his law studies here in Beirut at the St. Joseph University uh, in 1943 he took on the role as, as of the leader of the Jumblat family actually he took the power uh, with the death of his cousin uh, Hikmat Hikmat Jumblat and uh, it was also the, the year that Lebanon got its independence so basically everything this is this is go time for the country and for this man who would become very, very influential in the country. Definitely. In 1943, he became an MP, uh, and then he was appointed Minister of the Economy in the second cabinet uh, headed by Riyad Sulah, our first post-independent prime minister. 
1952, he uh, made an alliance with Kamil Shamoun, also another huge uh, historical figure in Lebanon, to overthrow President Bashar al-Khouri, our first post-independent president. And Kamil Shamoun was elected president instead. But soon afterwards, the relationship between the two men soured and uh, the alliance did not last long for, for several factors, but mostly in terms of international positioning because Shamoun was a very pro-West person. Kamal Jumblat was focused on the Palestinian cause and uh, he was against imperialist intervention. And he, he saw, for example, Jamal Abdel Nasser, who had led the revolution in Egypt, the Free Officers Revolution, as an ally, uh, while Kamil Shamoun wanted to join the Baghdad Pact. We talked about this in episode 28 called uh, Independent Lebanon with a question mark. You can check it out for more details. But anyway, there was a lot of tension. And then we had this mini civil war in 1958, the peak of these tensions, where Jumblat was kind of, it was Jumblat's first like military test or test on the ground. And uh, he proved pretty powerful. At the same time, Shamoun called the Americans for help and the Marines came. And we had this deal to bring in Fuad Shab, the army general Fuad Shab. As the, new, uh, as the next president with Jumblat's approval. And this was the beginning of the Shahabist area. It's a very important area. We'll talk about it maybe in an episode dedicated to Shahab later. But we had several governments uh, and Jumblat served in many of those governments. Um, and he was more or less in the Shahabist camp. But then there was a lot of tension between him and the Shahabist camp because mainly of, of issues of repression and freedom concerning the Deuxième Bureau, which is uh, the, the military intelligence, basically, the Lebanese army intelligence, which was kind of too influential on the security situation. At the same time, the army itself became too, too influential in politics, and Jumlat did not like that. In 1970, after two presidents uh, in the Shahabi regime or rule, uh, Jumlat actually switched against the Shahabist uh, coalition, and he, sa- he supported Suleiman Franji to be the president. And he won by one vote, by the way. So Jumblat was basically the person who made him win. And this Suleiman is the current Suleiman's grandfather. Exactly. And the other candidate was Elias Sarkis, former head of the Central Bank, also close to Shahab, because Shahab is the one who created the Central Bank. And uh, he later became president uh, in later years after uh, Suleiman Franji. But this was more or less the end of the Shahabist experience uh, in the Lebanese state. And what was happening at that point was that There was a, a lot of refugees from uh, Palestine were arriving and after 1967 with the war of 1967 and a lot of militants as well from Palestine were arriving. We had uh, a lot of tensions related to that specific security situation concerning w- how, we can, how we can deal with, with Palestinian militants being in Lebanon, especially with, uh, with the rise of Palestinian guerrilla warfare and the resistance against the Israelis taking this kind of form. So in 1969, we had the, the Cairo Accord an accord brokered by Jamal Abdel Nasser between the Lebanese army and Yasser Arafat, the Palestinian leader, whereby uh, the Palestinian factions would take control of uh, all 16 camps in terms of security from the Deuxième Bureau, from the Lebanese army, and they would be given the green light to operate against Israel from South Lebanon. And then what exacerbated this or what fueled it even further was that the Palestinian Liberation Organization was basically expelled from Jordan because of the Black September events and the tensions with King Hussein. And they came to Lebanon, most of them, and Lebanon became the headquarters of their action. This kind of was the fuel of the civil war that erupted a few years later in 1975. But in parallel, Lebanon was witnessing a socioeconomic crisis as well, a huge crisis because of the economic model taking a very monopolistic or oligopolistic kind of um, structure with few people controlling trade 
and uh, the rise of a financial and commercial elite that is predominantly Maronite, Christian Maronite. Yeah, don't, don't believe the uh, tourism slogans of Lebanon pre-Civil War of being some sort of Switzerland of the Middle East or whatever. No, there were huge, so, like all of the social problems that you can think of today basically existed back then, maybe even magnified. Yeah, I mean, especially when we talk about inequality or poverty, we had huge working classes of people from the north and the south and the east who were completely marginalized. And this was really the fuel of the civil war. We can include a couple of links on things that can give uh, people some background on, on the social and so political economic uh, background of the civil war. But this this also provided fuel for the rise of Jumblat, right? Yes, exactly. Because Jumblat was building on uh, this marginalization of a huge section of specifically the Muslim populations. And we had the middle class that was previously the biggest supporter of Shihabism, the project that wanted to build a strong state and strong public institution and strong welfare, kind of was divided among two populist camps. One is Jumblat's camp and a lot of Muslim mostly poor populations that support him. And on the other hand, you had uh, the Falanges, uh, the Kata'ab camp, led by the Ajmail family, which was more allied to the commercial and to the bourgeoisie, basically, and uh, against kind of any structural economic reform or social reform, and more socially conservative and anti-Palestinian. So it was about the Palestinians, it was about the security situation with the Palestinians, but also about the socioeconomic crisis and what to to do with it. But anyway, Jumblat was very opposed to this Maronite-led uh, kind of uh, economic structure and he was mobilizing against it. He joined a lot of workers' movements as well in this period of time and against the repression of these movements. So he was kind of a rising left-wing star in Lebanon. And when he was interior minister, he actually made legal a lot of these groups as well, right? The, the Ba'ath Party was illegal before he was interior minister and he made them legal. The Communist Party was illegal and he made them legal. Yes, exactly. And he established many political fronts throughout these years that we mentioned. But the most important one was the Lebanese National Movement, the coalition of left-wing, secular, Arabist parties that most prominently included, apart from Jumblat's PSP, the Communist Party, the SSMP, the Amal Movement, very ideologically diverse groups. But they had some kind of common project under this national movement. And uh, they were mostly seculars and leftists, plus pro-Palestinians and disenchanted Muslim population kind of groups. And Jumblat by then, by the mid-70s, was perceived not only as a a left-wing leader in Lebanon, but also kind of a leader of the Muslim population. And this is very important for for later stages of the civil war and how how the events turned out. Yeah, when I... When I initially learned about Kamal Jumblat, learning the history of Lebanon, I I just sort of like put him in place of Walid Jumblat. It was like, oh, he's Walid's father. And so he's, he's sort of the same sort of powerful figure, just as powerful as Walid is today. But no, that is absolutely false. Kamal Jumblat had a level of influence that is just... Uh, orders of magnitude larger than what Walid has today. Yeah, yeah, I agree. He's, he's more like what, you know, you hear about Rafi Kariri during the 90s or something. He's more on that level. Definitely, definitely. And uh, the period leading to the civil war uh, is, is the evidence uh, to what you're saying. And the civil war itself did not erupt as a, as a sectarian battle as a lot of people imagine it. Actually, the, there was some uh, tit-for-tat killing, and uh, especially after the massacre in April t- 1975, of Palestinian refugees by Falangist uh, militants, 
but in that period of time, uh, Kamal Jumblat and the, and the national movement were proposing a reform agenda, what they call the transitional program for the democratic reform of the Lebanese system, which basically said, let's secularize the system. Uh, pers- let's secularize personal status, uh, the electoral law, and establish administrative decentralization, and uh, many other reforms that are basically kind of oriented towards secularism and um, social justice and things like that, things that the left in this national movement was most interested in. So Jumblat and George Howe and these leftist leaders, George Howe was the leader of the Communist Party, uh, believed that this moment in history, because of the tension that exists and because they had the Palestinians on their side and the Palestinians were very powerful military-wise, they could impose on the Maronite-controlled political system some drastic changes by kind of leveraging over this fragile security situation. So the idea was, these changes are really good for Lebanon and we want them to happen. So this is our historical moment. George Howe believed that this was the socialist, uh, probably revolutionary action to do. And Jumblat was, was thinking these are the this reforms that would ensure uh, our well-being for the future. And this was maybe the most miscalculated step. Fawaz Trabolsi, one of my favorite historians, whose uh, works I'm relying on a lot in this flow of information, has called this a semi-suicidal adventure, uh, Jumblat's reform by arms agenda. So basically, Jumblat and the national movement at this point were proposing you know, either a breakdown of the security situation and the loss of legitimacy by the Lebanese state, or these structural reforms that they wanted. And many attempts at dialogue and resolving the crisis were completely failed. Um, the other camp was led by Jumail uh, from Kata'ab, and basically, by the end of that year, with the, with the increasing tensions and some battles here and there, the national movement was completely immersed in the civil war. Along with the Palestinians, they started making big gains. They were much more powerful, much more, much better organized uh, by most accounts uh, than the Lebanese Front, which is the Christian factions, especially in the early stages of the civil war. So in 1976, Christian forces realized they were losing the war, so um, Frangii, the most influential figure maybe among them, apart from Jamail, convinced them to ask for the support of Hafez al-Assad, the head of the Syrian regime, the president of Syria, and this is indeed what happened. The Arab deterrent forces came into Lebanon, 40,000 troops, around 40,000 troops, mostly Syrians and led by the Syrian regime, and Jumblat was completely opposed to this intervention. And he kind of, according to his son, Walid, he kind of understood that Assad was here to control or had the ambition to politically control Lebanon. So the tensions between Assad and, and Jumblat were rising dramatically uh, to the extent that Jumblat said that there is a Syrian-Israeli-American plot against Lebanon, against the Arab-Palestinian revolution. And Assad, on the other hand, was saying Jumblat actually wants to destroy the, like, the kind of sideline the Christians of Lebanon and become president. Uh, and he's, all he wants is revenge from the Christians. These are his real motives, and all his reform agenda is just to cover that those real motives. So the, the Syrian forces waged many battles against the national movement and Palestinians. They ended up controlling the country, basically. Jumblat himself had to, you know, pass on Syrian checkpoints and, like, succumb to uh, the Syrian dominance militarily. So this was really, like, Jumblat at the height of his power making his play in the early stages of the Lebanese civil war, making his play for complete transformation of the state, basically, and getting smacked down by the Syrians. Yeah, because he believed he didn't. I think he didn't uh, expect the Syrians to be 
that concerned about the collapse of Maronite politics in Lebanon and the collapse of Christian dominance over the state. Because before the civil war, I think most of our listeners would know that the Christians had much bigger share of the state. They controlled most important state institutions, specifically the Maronites, right? The central bank, the army, the radio, the university, etc. All of these posts were previously held by, by Maronites. Um, so I think Jumla didn't understand that Syrians were, would be that concerned. And the Syrians were smart enough to know that this is an opportunity to divide and conquer. Uh, this was not a crisis that needed to be solved. No, this is an, an opportunity to intervene and to dominate after what seemed to be kind of a win for the left and the Palestinians, which were not, you know, loyal to the Syrian regime by any standard. They were much more independent and they had support from bigger actors than the Syrian regime, in fact. But the Syrians in invasion of Lebanon was, was not the only thing that, that ended up stopping Kamal Shumblad. Ultimately, what stopped him was his death, was his assassination. And what happened with that is that during the Civil War, we started seeing these rising tensions, the things like uh, his, his sister, Linda, was killed by a group of, of armed men who broke into her apartment. Uh, his son, Walid, was kidnapped at one point and, and was only uh, freed through the intervention of Camille uh, uh, Chamon. Mm-hmm. And so on March 16th, uh, 1977, Kamal Jublat was headed to Beirut to a parliament session and near a town called Baklin, his car was ambushed. Exactly. So there was this sports Pontiac car that went, took, overtook their car and at some point stopped. Uh, according to the investigation, what probably happened is that they removed the bodyguards from uh, Jumblat's car, they put them in the sports car, and two of the armed men jumped into Jumblat's car and the two cars drove for a, for a certain distance. And then after that, all three men were killed. So it's not very clear what exactly happened. But because of this scenario, uh, a lot of people, including one of the main people who were investigating the murder upon uh, upon its occurrence, late Brigadier General Haysam Abuziki said that he it was probably a kidnapping attempt rather than an assassination attempt. Because if they wanted to kill him, they would have just shot him. They had the weapons and they had four men. Uh, it, was a, it would have been easy. But anyway, the Pontiac car broke down very close to the murder scene. They had to leave it. And they had to hijack another car and force the driver to drive to Sinilfil near Beirut to the offices of a Syrian Air Force intelligence officer called Ibrahim al-Hawaija. And this is what the investigations later revealed, which is why Ibrahim al-Hawaija is considered the main suspect in the death of uh, in the killing of Kamal Jumblat. And Wal Jumblat himself said this this person, according to my knowledge, is the person responsible of his death. So not only did the Syrians come in and invade the country, smack down Kamal Jumblat's ambitions, they went on, according to Walid Jumblat and according to a lot of other people, they went on to murder Kamal Jumblat. This is what the threads uh, lead you to. I mean, we don't have any final investigation because the investigation was cut short and the judge that was carrying out this investigation was threatened and actually was subjected to what seemed to be some assassination attempts or at least attempts to make him very scared. And upon the demand of the president, Elias uh, Sarkis, uh, from what we know, the investigation was uh, announced a failed process. And the, the state said, OK, we don't know who killed Kamal Jumblat. We have no evidence uh, against anyone, although they had provided in the original investigation some serious evidence that led us to actually make the conclusion that we're making. And also another like side story is that, first of all, the CIA in a declassified document that goes back to August 1976 said that and I quote, it is evident that the Syrians are determined to crush Kamal Jumblat. 
So with the Syrian det- uh, Syrian forces controlling the region, including the region where Kamal Jumlat comes from, uh, and when he was passing on Syrian checkpoints, and according to Abu Zikid, the same man, he had to let go of his bodyguards because of the Syrian forces' harassment. And we have no evidence to point otherwise. We can conclude, yes, it was the Syrians who did it. So after the assassination, clearly the, the, this was a huge upheaval. Uh, and a lot of people uh, were just... I mean, I, I can't imagine what the grief must have been like for a lot of people who were his followers, who were his, who were his devotees. On the other side of things, though, there are all these reports that, you know, East Beirut, you had gunfire and stuff like that going off. Uh, apparently, people mm-hmm. very happy that, that this had happened. So so again, we, we, we find this theme of larger-than-life figure in Lebanese politics being pretty divisive and, and a lot of people being extraordinarily devoted to his cause and a lot of people being very, very against him. Yeah, maybe he was not as divisive as other figures that we've talked about, like Bashir Ismail, but he was also not a, a uniting figure, of course, because, I mean, he was responsible to a great extent for a, a huge war that happened Uh, between his uh, political group, the national movement, and the Christian forces. So I can imagine how much um, hatred there, there would be against him for, in a lot of communities. But anyway, this, this, these tensions that existed between the Christians and the Druze manifested after his death, and we had a lot of violence happening against Christian communities in Mount Lebanon that didn't happen in the time of Kamal Jumblat because he was very careful about turning this into a sectarian civil war. He did not see it as a civil war at all. He saw it as a war of political uh, dominance and political reform between two major like political coalitions and not as something in terms of I'm going to kill my neighbor because he's Christian or Druze. It's a completely different kind of struggle uh, or, or conflict. But it did indeed happen. And an interesting thing that happened next is that two months after the assassination, although everyone knew that it was the Syrians behind it or suspected at least, Walid Jumblat went to... Damascus. He met with Hafez al-Assad. A very awkward meeting. We will put the link in the episode description of a short video of this meeting. Hafez al-Assad was making jokes and laughing. Like he, was, he seemed very happy. Shumblat had this anger in his eyes. He just he looked like he's, he wanted to kill that guy. I mean, it's really interesting how, how he was looking at him. But it seemed that Shumblat was advised that if he doesn't go and shake Hafez al-Assad's hand and he makes friends with him, he makes a deal with him, his religious group or at least his political family will be completely crushed because if they kill his father they might as well just you know finish the job and just eliminate the Jumblat family and that would have been completely life-changing and for, for the for the fate of the Druze community in general politically and and also after this point after religion blot goes to Damascus you know the Lebanese civil war sort of turns into just pure sectarianism. The the, the Lebanese national uh, movement started by Walid's father starts to disintegrate. It is not the potent force that it that it was in its when it was first founded. And 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 yeah, the the, the civil war itself just becomes uh, that much harsher, that much more zero sum, uh, and that much more deadly. Yes, and Syria itself became the divisive factor inside the two former uh, political camps, right? Among the Christians and among the Muslims and the seculars, Syria became the determinant of where you stand politically. So you had the Amal movement leaving the national movement because of the conflict with Syria just before uh, Jumblat's assassination. 
and some other minor groups or individuals leaving this coalition. And on the other hand, you had very complex relationship between, between the Syrians and each of the leadership in the Christian co- in the Christian scene. For example, Shamoun and Jumayil and Frangiyi. With each of them, this Hafez al-Assad had completely different relationship, and he used uh, these dynamics in order to, you know, as we said before, divide and conquer. So, if you're looking back then on what Kamal Jumblat's legacy was, it depends on a great deal just where you're coming from, whether you are mm. Druze or Maronite or whatever, or on one side or the other within one of those communities, right? Definitely, yeah. If you are from uh, an Arslan supporting family, because the Arslan family and the, Dru- and the Jumblat family were the you know, traditional foes in Druze feudal politics, if you're from the, the Arslan family, you might not really appreciate Kamal Jumblat as a phenomenon as much as if you are from the Jumblat side of the, the, the spectrum. And, you know, if you grow up in a pro-Jumblat Druze environment, you have a certain image of Kamal Jumblat in your head. And it's much more than just a politician. It, it was actually, I've read so many times people say, writing, he was not a politician. He was not an MP. He was bigger than life. You know, he was not a minister, etc. No, he was a, a leader in all senses. One of the senses is that personally, in terms of lifestyle and personal decisions, he was someone who was very spiritual and very modest. He didn't care about, you know, showing prestige. He actually wanted to eliminate some Ottoman titles uh, or, or things that, you know, the remainders of of class divisions of the past. He had a vision and a dream for an Arab society that is in solidarity, you know, this pan-Arabist idea in solidarity with the Palestinians and with each other against the forces of destruction. He had the courage and the principled politics that would allow him to stand against Shah al-Khuri, then against Kamil Shamoun when each of them was doing wrong, and then against even Fuad Shahab when he's being authoritarian, etc., and most prominently in 1975 against a whole group of, of, of people who were actually ruling the government and saying, hey, if the, the whole state, we will break it down if you don't transform it into a better system. So he represents these things for a lot of people, especially among the Druze community, because this is the community where he is known best, but also among some leftist intellectual and communist uh, communities. In, in, in South Lebanon, in East Lebanon, and uh, Mount Lebanon. But that sort of intellectual side, and, and, and also that standing on principle, is what gets him into trouble a lot of times in, in, in people who remember him, because they remember what the end of the story was, right? And Definitely. ultimately, you know, the, uh, Fawaz Tarbulsi's line that it was a semi-suicidal adventure, well, no, for Kamal Jumblat, in the end, it was a suicidal adventure. The results of that were huge and... And, and very bad for everybody concerned. And so if you if you are this intellectual, if you are this person standing on principle, that's not a good thing necessarily. Yeah, I mean, we, we have to acknowledge the positive intellectual and political legacy of this man. I think it's extremely significant what he did because right now we are seeing the implications of his uh, legacy in Shouf and Alay, for example, a district where I am politically involved with people, you know, being supportive of secularism, being supportive of, of women's rights, being supportive of progressive reforms that we talk about. And this, you know, very significant because in other areas where you didn't have this move, this kind of intellectual movement, you don't have these things today to the same extent. So I think this legacy is something that he should take the credit for. On the other hand, he is c- criticized by his own people as much as by his opponents for being a bit too much, too dreamy, you know, too 
too disconnected from political realism, which is something that his son actually is never accused of because Walid Jumblat is the ultra-pragmatic capitalist-slash-politician who is doing everything possible to maintain his own power and the interest of uh, what he sees the interest of the, of the Druze community around him, but from a very pragmatic political perspective rather than principled politics. And this, you know, the first sign of this was his visit to Hafez Assad, in my opinion, in 1977. It was this moment where Walid Jumblat was clear, I will be putting the uh, the pragmatic interests first and not my crazy ideals. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see the the dichotomy between the two on that on that factor whereas the the father derived a lot of his respect and legitimacy from this one thing of him being, you know, this person standing on principle, his son actually derives a lot of legitimacy from the opposite of that. Exactly. But not to say he's not principled. <laughs> exactly. That, no, that's 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 a very fair assessment. And I've heard it from a lot of people who support Wali Jumlat. They say that he is, you know, he might be a bit smarter politically because he knows how to make sure that we survive as a, as a Druze community in a time where a lot of people want us to, to be eliminated or whatever. So his character as a super pragmatic uh, politician fits with the Druze kind of obsession with political survivor or with the Druze focus on this political survivor as the ultimate priority. But as you said, on the other hand, a lot of people uh, like accuse him of being, you know, one of the reasons that the civil war happened, you know, and a lot of people on the Christian side of, of the spectrum, on the right wing side, etc., think that Kamal Jumblat, first of all, intellectually had a project that was anti-Lebanese. It was a project that kind of put the Palestinian cause on top of the Lebanese one in terms of priorities. And it advocated a pan-Arabist system or solution rather than a Lebanese-specific one. And this is in direct contrast with the Christian Lebanese project, which is basically this country is very special in the region because it has Christians. It's not the same as these other Arab countries don't have major populations of Christians. So it has a very different and distinct role in the region to play and you see this rhetoric from times of from the times of uh, Bashir Jmail who we spoke about in, in one of our previous episodes to the times of Jibran Basil today who really have the same rhetoric the Christians of the east or the orient are the saviors of the region because they have a very special role to play so in in a lot of ways what Kamal Jumblat stood for it, it. It really is sort of like a stand-in for these, like this larger debate about what Lebanon is. Mm. And ultimately, he uh, he died. He was murdered. But this, like the, the this question was never solved. <laughs> the assassination did not end this question. And, and and it's something that Lebanese politicians and Lebanese themselves still struggle with this relationship between uh, where does Lebanon stand vis-a-vis the Arab world and the West. And where is Lebanon's place in all of this? Exactly. And what is, what's the function of Lebanon? And what's our priority as people? Is it to advance the causes that we believe in, in the region, you know, against oppression, against occupation, etc.? Or is it really to maintain this sensitive and fragile society or mix of societies and protect it from, from all of these actors who don't acknowledge how important it is to maintain this fragile situation? And, you know, uh, the complex legacy of Kamal Jumblat, the fact that he was a dreamer, I think, in my opinion, I think he was like someone who believed in very good values and someone who was like a good person who had a a good vision for, for society. At the same time, he didn't understand 
how risky and how dangerous it is to put the Lebanese uh, s- political system and society under the threat of you know um, of security breakdown in order to advance your uh, your economic your economic and social project and political project. It has been proven that threatening with violence in Lebanon to achieve any kind of sectarian goals will always lead to bad things happening. And I think this is really one of the lessons that we learned from Kamal Jumblat, fighting for the values and, you know, uh, the vision that we have for society should be uh, in line with some political realism about what is achievable without alienating the people that we are trying to bring on our project, you know, because if you want to build socialism and progressive socialism, you cannot build it by excluding 70-80% of the Christians and so on. So any kind of project that we have today is always trying to um, maneuver between these lines, you know, how do we not exclude and sideline people? At the same time, how do we op- like propose and offer a bold agenda for reform and social change? And on that note, uh, we have to leave it right there. Uh, we're going to be off next week, but we're going to be back with another podcast uh, in a couple of weeks. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.